Hey there, this is Charles Latimer, Chief Innovation and Growth Officer at FinFit and your host of the Secure Podcast. At FinFit, we're committed to making finance stress-free for employees. We give them the resources to tackle challenges like inflation, credit card debt, unexpected expenses, and student loan repayment so that they can be more productive and live happier lives. We do that by solving short-term financial challenges and helping build short-term savings for emergencies and unexpected expenses. Now tune in to the Secure Podcast, where we delve into the unique financial challenges your employees face. We talk about important new legislation like the Secure 2.0 Act and offer fresh insights from experts committed to building financial well-being for your workforce. Don't miss an episode. Join us and get empowered to positively impact your team's financial future. Check it out. Welcome, everybody, to the Secure Podcast. This is Charles Latimer, your host. I am here today with Lamont Thurston, who's a founder and CEO of Benary, uh, an extraordinary mind in the world of finance and insurance, and, and a dear colleague of mine. Uh, Lamont, welcome to the Secure Podcast. Good to be with you, Charles. Thank you. I don't know about extraordinary mind, but well, you got to manage well, expectations you know, here. <laughs> I, I would say, from my opinion, extraordinary mind. So, you know what? With all the conversation, we've had a lot of great conversations over the past several months. And, and you know, one thing I, I don't know that we've fully packed together, which is a little bit of your backstory. You know, how, how did you sort of land here? I mean, what, what was your academic background? What what kind of landed you into to your current role with Benary and really innovating in the space of employer-sponsored benefits and just innovating the and sort of revolutionizing the, the how we look at supplemental plans and just the overall health insurance matrix. Yeah, well, I, I'll start with, I think I got into the insurance business by accident, like a lot of people that are in the insurance business. And once you find yourself there, you, you think, gosh, I'm I'm glad this happened. But I was a I was a econ major, uh, finance graduate, uh, studies uh, an MBA in finance. Um, but right out of school, I went and uh, taught English in Japan for a couple of years, and headed back to Cincinnati, Ohio, and went to work for a big bank that had 350 or so Japanese-owned companies that were clients, and did corporate banking for about 14 years and moved around the country. We did acquisitions and turnaround work and I was leading groups and they dropped me in Toledo, Ohio uh, for two years, 20 years ago. And we found that we, we love living here. And I said, well, I'm going to take a little professional risk because I had been with the same employer for 14 years. Um, and it was a, it was a great run and a great place to great place to learn and work and kind of grow as a business person. But I went to work for one of our board members in the insurance space, and I really thought that I would do property and casualty because all of my contacts up and down I-75 were all finance people. And everybody I went to visit with said, we get a price reduction every year in our property and casualty, and it's a small line item, and we get a giant increase every year, and we've got major math problems in healthcare. So I focused on benefits and, you know, did self-insured groups. And as that was transpiring, um, I was doing a lot of uh, referrals to the captive insurance industry and captives are, you know, think of it as, you know, benefits people always sort of sell themselves short in terms of understanding captives, but it's just formalization of self-insurance is basically what it is. It's the intersection of finance and insurance. And, you know, I found as I did more and more of that work that that played to my strengths. So I became a captive consultant and formed and operated a lot of different captive insurance companies. And the, the long story short is best practices in the captive world have been done for decades and decades, but it hadn't been applied to supplemental insurance. And so that that was sort of the the genesis of you know, I was a finance guy, but doing benefits 
and property and casualty is usually where all the finance guys are and, and, and ladies as well. So um, that's, that's kind of what happened. So, so that's interesting that you made that leap from over into the supplemental side. Could, could you just, for our audience, and, and we, we have a, a sophisticated audience of, of HR and benefits executives, but could, could you just kind of give from your perspective the backdrop of, of captives and just the overall uh, employer-sponsored health plan over the last 20 years or so? Sure, sure. So as I said, ca- the, the captive industry has been around since the 50s. There are thousands and thousands of them. Uh, most of our clients uh, own their own captive insurance companies, and they've done you know, workers' compensation, um, auto liability, general liability, medical malpractice, you know, um, more property and casualty, but the fastest growth area um, in the industry by far is in the employee benefit space. And it, it's the lower end of the market uh, size-wise of employers. There's a very large trend to do medical stop loss in a group captive to kind of smooth out the wild roller coaster ride that catastrophic claims can cause. So there, there's an abundance of employers that are going into that. And then on the upper end, you know, very large companies are saying, okay, how do we take the more catastrophic things that happen and put layers of that into the captive in- insurance company that, that we own? What Benary has done is taken a, a you know, ca- captives are good at um, exposing and kind of uh, creating more efficiency uh, for things that are inefficient in the market. And what I mean by inefficient is uh, low claims ratios and not a great value proposition for the premiums that are being spent. And in the case of critical illness, accident, and hospital indemnity coverage, uh, claims ratios for decades have been very, very low. And so captives, when you unbundle all of that and sort of go self-insured or quasi-self-insured to the extent possible uh, with the regulatory constraints, um, it was an opportunity for disruption. And in the first uh, handful of years, we have about a million employees in the program. So um, I, I think, wow, I think the messaging is, is resonating. Absolutely. So, so what has sort of prevented the sort of supplemental insurances from coming into as an embedded part of the plan today? Is it the sort of just the overall cost? Uh, and, and is it that, is it the claims ratio that just, you know, the CFO can't get their mind around and so it just sort of sits off in the periphery, but it becomes that, you know, a, a part of the stop loss a, equation as well. But, you know, could you kind of walk us through what, why the sort of the, it seems like on the surface, of, of course, you'd want everyone to have sort of critical illness, hospital indemnity to kind of smooth out those catastrophic events. Why is that, you know, sort of sat on the sidelines for so long? And what's the trend right now? Yeah, well, I think we start with um, over the last 20 years, uh, these coverages have grown from about $4 billion of premium to about $12 billion of premium in a falling rate environment. So that's not because of inflation. That's because of adoption. And and the reason for the adoption is, um, you know, you have a sophisticated viewership, but even if you just read the paper and you're not in the industry, we all know healthcare has gotten pretty expensive in the last 20 years. And the outlet valve for that is, and this is where it really aligns with the work that you do at FinFit, um, deductibles are getting higher and higher, out-of-pocket maximums are getting higher and higher. And when you look at the average deductible in America and you pair that with what the average savings rate is, we have a mismatch from a risk standpoint for the consumer. So to fill that, you know, gap, if you will, it's been let's offer, you know, critical illness, which is the, the, the big three majors are stroke, heart attack and cancer, which, you know, everybody has basic life insurance at a company, but not everybody has critical illness. But you have a way more likelihood of having a critical illness event than passing away while you're on the job. So there's been growth there. Hospital indemnity. Um, if you're admitted to the hospital, pretty much you're going to hit the deductible. 
you know, we were talking to a health insurer the other day and they said, we've, we've gone through our studies and if you get admitted, so if you spend one night in the hospital, you're going to, you're going to pretty much hit your deductible. So that's a big exposure for, for people, you know, uh, that can't necessarily avoid, avoid the deductible. And then accident is, you know, really popular with, uh, families with young children, uh, or young people that are active in, you know, a lot of, uh, extracurricular activities and stuff happens. Didn't happen as much during COVID. So claims went down, but normally it's pretty active. So does that help? Did I, did I? No, that, that helps a lot. I mean, it, it's interesting uh, that, that I, I never really thought about that the, on the accident side, that that would, you know, decrease in the middle of a pandemic. It makes complete sense. People are sort of a little bit more contained in their environment. So kind of help, Help uh, the listeners kind of humanize this a little bit. I mean, so when when you, you know, at the end of your, you know, election on your plan, I mean, maybe you have the ability to uh, volunteer into a critical illness or a hospital indemnity. I don't know that a lot of folks know what that is. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I think if I polled all my colleagues, you know, I don't know, maybe half of them would say, yeah, I checked the box or, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they didn't there. And so can, can you just kind of help, help leap, you know, what, you know, you did a wonderful job explaining those, you know, what they cover, but when it's a voluntary benefit, you know, what, what happens on a human level when, when that gets just skipped over and glossed over? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back because I didn't answer the second part to your question about why these hadn't been done in a captive before, but you just touched on one of the reasons, and that is they're voluntarily enrolled. Right. So and and at most employers, uh, the voluntary coverage enrollment will be, you know, 20, 30 percent. So one in five, one in three uh, employees will take the coverage and the majority are still fully exposed. And to give you a, to kind of humanize this to your point, um, six months ago, uh, we were working with a, a a journalist, a business writer who had a side hustle uh, doing content development. And so we were writing some blogs and as he was getting to know us and we were explaining what we do, he started openly crying, uh, physically crying on the call. And, you know, my team was paused and said, look, have we offended you somehow? And he said, no, I, he, he said, during open enrollment, I ignored this. Uh, I did not elect coverages, and I just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Uh, I'm a journalist. I don't make a lot of money. We are uh, extremely stressed out, my wife and I, and I wish I would have understood what a critical illness policy could have done for me uh, because we're, you know, we're in a world of hurt. And, and unfortunately, four months later, he passed away. And so I always feel like, you know, I it's not to sell somebody something, it's to have them understand what it's meant to match up with. And then on the employer side, who's wearing the fiduciary hat, um, how do you make sure that the the maximum amount of claims for the premiums being paid are being delivered? So transparency is a big theme, right? And, and this is the second reason that they hadn't really been looked at from a captive perspective before. People weren't aware. You said it earlier. The CFO. This doesn't hit their line item. It's payroll deducted from the employees. Out of sight, out of mind. Not a lot of attention paid to it. Well, now it's such an important strategic component of what the overall delivery of the of the health insurance is that people are really starting to look at it. So, one of the hurdles to doing this has been because it is voluntarily paid or payroll deducted employers would have an inherent conflict of interest by writing this in their own captive insurance company. You know, it's a, it would be a prohibited transaction from a Department of Labor standpoint or an ERISA standpoint. You cannot earn a dividend or take back uh, money from your own employees because you have a, not that employers would do it, but the feeling is if the potential is there to keep claims low and then I get a bigger dividend, that's a problem. And employers don't want to be situated that way. So the way we solved for that is to put 100 plus employers with a million employees all in one giant mixing bowl, and nobody has an incentive to keep the claims low. 
they all want to get the best value proposition and have a clear sight line into how the financials are running uh, for the employees. So that's that's kind of the, the genesis of there was more attention paid to it. We were able to create a program that there is there is nowhere to hide. You know, commissions are outlaid. The carrier expenses outlaid. The cost of running the captive is outlaid. Larger claims fund. And if the claims don't get paid, it goes back as a plan asset to be reinvested further for the benefit of the employees. So it uh, it took us a while to to get there and to market to become uh, more attuned to both the importance of it and the opportunity to uh, have a better have a better model. So, well, boy, that I mean, it's what Benary says really done a huge value alignment. You know, to make sure that everyone's interest are co-aligned, you know, and, and, you know, to your point, that transparency, you know, in terms of just sort of opening up this conversation writ large for the American workforce, what what, what are the competing insurances, uh, you, you know, the sort of, I guess, the dental vision, those sorts of things that, that are, that are Im- embedded on the health plan. Um, and is, What's the overall? What are the conversations you're having with HR executives and 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 just overall benefit administrators as, as they look at sort of their plan design? It, 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 what is the sort of bringing the supplement these critical illness and hospital indemnities more into the sort of employer funded side? What, what what sort of conversations are you having around you know the give and take there? So I'll give you a. a... I guess a few things to think about there, Charles. Um, the first is a lot of times we're brought in to employers that don't offer these coverages today. Uh, we had a Fortune 500 CFO say, I, I, I say, well, let's start with why you don't offer them today. And the CFO said, they're a ripoff. His words, not mine. I said, okay, that's a good starting point. So the lack of transparency and the, and the perceived perceived and real low claims ratios are an issue. Here's how we've solved for that. Okay, you have my attention now. Uh, I'm gonna see how the numbers work. And I think that there is a need for it. And they were surprised by the uptake. So the first step is, is it offered or not? And then to your point on, I, I wouldn't call them competing. Well, in a way they're sort of competing for a finite number of dollars that an employee is willing to put towards their benefits package. And the the way that we uh, enroll benefits today is not strategic. It is in the chronological order that these coverages were created, right? First there was medical, and then they were like, well, may, maybe we could do the same thing for dental. No disrespect to dental, but the limits are really low. You're prepaying for your cleanings and everybody maxes out at $1,000. That's not exactly, you know, catastrophic. It's it's a sort of a financing of your trip to the dentist. And we usually enroll Vision third, and Vision is a discount program masquerading as insurance. You know, it's uh it's it's not true insurance. And so what we try and do from an educational standpoint is say, look, um, here's your medical, and I think, you know, and even in the C-suite where you go, well, yeah, our average deductible is $1,500, um, you know, so we, we have a good health insurance program. That is true for the top half of the pyramid. For the bottom half of the pyramid, from a payroll standpoint, a, 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 a trip to the hospital, I'm starting the spiral, right? Because I didn't have $1,500 or, or, you know, without a pot, with coinsurance, you know, it could be $5,000 that was not in my family budget. And so now I'm headed to the payday loan center or putting it on my credit cards that are already, you know, running pretty high. So let's put that second because the employees are, are looking at, you know, psychologically, this is order of importance, not chronological order of invention. Let's put them second. And the minute you do that adoption goes up. And then I was so going to the ask if there was touch a real difference in adoption. So is it, I mean, is, is that difference significant? I mean, is it like the difference between like 10 and 30 or, you know, is it 20? Yeah, that's and 50? a pretty, that's a pretty good guess, you know, 20 to 40, sometimes 20 to 30. It just depends on how good the technology is. And uh, is there a decision support 
mechanism in the system. If there is, it goes up, you know, even more. Um, but the other trend, and, and I think you mentioned it, is a lot more employer funding of these items. Because as I mentioned, everybody has basic life. And if you look at in a given year with a big population, not that many people are like, gosh, you know, thank you, employer. Uh, you know, my spouse was covered. But in any given year, there's a heck of a lot of trips to the hospital and diagnoses and, and you know, trips for um, stents and emergency bypass and all, you know, all the things that during our work lives are going to happen. So there's a trend, especially in a high deductible uh, plan, uh, an HSA compatible plan, big trend in, in employer funding of one or two of those lines of coverage. And, you know, I, I the, the thing that I like about that is you cover 100% of the employees. It is a very meaningful, you know, if if the employee is diagnosed with cancer and a check is sent to the home for $10,000 to support the family during a time of, you know, already a lot of stress and nerves and everything else about how the story is going to going to end major kudos to the employer for covering hundred percent of those people. It's not that Russian roulette of gosh, I hope it was one in one of the one in five people that signed up and did it voluntarily. So um, I just see, you know, I see an opportunity for employers to to stand out from uh, at some level uh, funding it. So, so I, I'm curious when you shift from a voluntary benefit into an employer funded model, do, do, do the claims uh, is there a material reduction in claims, or, or, or is it pretty consistent? Well. <laughs> So there, there's two ways to answer that question. I mean, obviously the claims uh, go up pretty dramatically because you're fourfold, fivefold increasing the number of covered people, but you're you're indirectly touching on one of the reasons that claims have traditionally run low here, and I call it the wind at the back of the industry, where the employee has something happen and they just completely forget that they have this coverage. Or, you know, I, I, I've gone to Best Buy and had a mail-in rebate and promptly thrown the bag away and not, you know, because I'm bad at paperwork. I haven't followed through on it. That happens all day, every day, because these aren't uh, auto-adjudicated typically. There are There is a trend to do medical claims integration. So if X happens on the healthcare side, a uh, reminder is sent to the employee and uh, up in that scenario. So communication and reminding employees that they have a valuable uh, benefit is, um, you know, is, is certainly a best practice. But what the captive does is says, okay, if the employee forgets that they have the coverage and they didn't file the claim, because claims usually run lower than what is predicted as a general industry or in this part of the industry, um, it's at least gonna go back for reinvestment uh, as, as a plan asset and short of being able to match up the, the dividend with the exact employee that was payroll deducted, which with turnover and it's a de minimis amount. And we like it when employers say, well, that's what we want to do because we know we've found our people, you know, they're trying to do absolutely the most and the best they can do for, for the uh, employee, but administratively it, it would be a, a kind of a fool's errand to try and do that. You know, when that dividend is returned as a plan asset, how how are companies typically using those resources today? Or is there a particular trend there or, or is it just all over the board? Um, I would say all over the board. Um, the big the big categories would be technology. Um, so upgrading uh, Ben Admin, we had an employer that, that added decision support and uh, participation and enrollment and decision-making and migrating to plan designs that they were hoping to have uh, higher uh, migration to was successful. Wellness, including, you know, financial wellness is, is uh, certainly, you know, we're, we've been talking about the financing of illness and we don't talk enough about the avoidance of illness uh, through, you know, stress reduction from a financial standpoint or, or a health standpoint. Um, 
we had a we had a, a, a very large employer during COVID that had never had an EAP program. Uh, and their decision was pretty simple. Look, we've looked at the participation rates in uh, in the EAP program, and it's two to three percent utilization until COVID happened, and everybody was under you know duress and had nowhere to call. They used the dividend to fund uh, an EAP program and still fund that today from an ongoing standpoint. So, um, anything that is an allowable expense under um, ERISA as a plan asset. Uh, is, you know, and, and I always say it's a fungible dollar. So where where is your pain the greatest? And I'm I'm still yet to meet a human resources group that says, no, nah, we're we're really over resourced. We 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 have too much money. <laughs> you know, every, everyone says I've got a laundry list of things I'd like to roll out, and um, I can't. You know, it's it's a little bit like wellness where you, you can't prove a negative. So. You know, we we know it's the right thing to do, but how do you show an ROI? And sometimes that's a bit tricky. So, yeah, every HR executive I've ever talked to is like, "Yeah, I'm in human resources. I'm still trying to find the resources because you know, this is yeah. forever." Like, yeah, there is. Yeah, it, well, it, and, let's and, just say it, it's it, not an overfunded category. Yeah, the, the irony to that is they're they're looking for the resources, and then in the same sentence you query and they say our number one asset our most important asset is our people <laughs> that's right and uh, yeah the great irony so, right and yeah. I, I really I, I really appreciate you connecting um financial precarity and 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 these insurances as well and just overall stress reduction can, can, can you talk about uh your your experience and insights in terms of being appropriately insured you know with things like you know, critical illness, hospital indemnity, and making sure that you have a plan design that really, you know, if you do have a catastrophic event, you know, you're going to be covered, you know, you're going to have some, you know, a safety net, as it were. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the connection between financial precarity and reduction of stress, and having the appropriate plan design. Well, the, the good news is during open enrollment, um, there are a lot of choices like the emergence of, you know, pet insurance. And, you know, we, we just started a pool for legal insurance and we didn't know that much about it, but there's care navigation companies like concierge services to help you navigate healthcare. Well, in the legal insurance front, it's kind of a legal navigation uh, insurance and service for that. So there's just a, a, a plethora of things out there but how does the employee in their individual situation figure out, look, I, again, I have a finite number of dollars. I get enrollment fatigue where, all right, I'm on the 15th thing that I could buy. What should I get? And that's where I think, you know, education and communication becomes so important because, you know, we should all to the extent possible save in into our HSA account, you know, it's triple benefited. Um, I think everyone, you know, let, let's start at age 30, 35, should have a critical illness policy. You know, we all want disability and we all want life. But again, the likelihood of something happening for, for uh, demographics or census when we get a file from a, an employer where they have a lot of uh, young working for the company. Hospital indemnity is wildly popular because you, when you're admitted to the hospital, it could be a bad reason like being in a car accident, or it could be a totally joyous reason like having a baby and you're going to have that, you know, admittance, $1,000, $1,500, and then a per diem, which usually they have you in and out pretty quickly. But for a small premium to share that among everybody is is a good thing. So the there's no like uh, simple answer to that. I think it's, you know, having each employee have as much information tailored to what their situation is, both in terms of the resources they have and, and you know, the life stage that they're in, if you will, and, and, and frankly, their health situation. I, I think, you know, it, and I sometimes I feel like a broken record here, but I, I think there's such an opportunity to use data and take a very outcomes-based approach here to tell just such a different story uh, that, that, you know, to really empower HR executives and, and benefit executives to tell a different story up to the C-suites, in particular the CFO, you know, around the 
impact of, you know, if, if you reduce financial stress, there's an overall halo effect associated with that. I mean, and, you know, and you're actually, especially in the self-funded space, I mean, you know, and, and I think there's a real opportunity and you have actually have a really unique background because if you come from finance and then you uh, entered in, you know, into the insurance space, you know, Japanese, I mean, this is, these are, these are, this, these are a host of skill sets. And so what do you see as either your own personal interest or even Benary's sort of role in terms of helping illuminate through a database, a data-driven uh, lens, a new story up into the C-suite around sort of plan design, the reduction of financial stress, its impact in terms of just overall, uh, not only health outcomes, but business outcomes. I, I'm just curious, do you sit around thinking about that or, or are you really just so busy trying to kind of reshift how the the mental model around how, how these uh, particular benefits are, are utilized? Well, first, uh, domo, arigato gozaimasu, Charles. I've just exhausted my fluency uh, in, in Japanese, so let's start there. Um, I, I think you, I think you bring up an important topic, and it's it's really funny that you bring this this question up. An hour ago, I was on a call with a head of uh, benefits for a Fortune 500 company. And so we were going through kind of strategic planning um, scratch pad, and I showed her the way that we look at the world in terms of if you're going to go to finance and say, I need something, let's at least have some assumptions on what is the cost outlay, what is the human capital component of that, and then what do I think the financial impact can be? basically a pro forma statement for when I'm asking for dollars. And when you do that, you immediately garner, like it, it's taken more seriously. And we, we have a little tool that will do the payback period, the net present value and the uh, internal rate of return on any investment that HR is asking for. And, you know, it's direct, it's a directionally correct answer. The company then can turn their financial analysts loose on it and and dial that in. They're going to get to the same directionally correct answer. We can argue about the assumptions, but at least we're having a, a business argument now, not just, hey, I went to a conference and I saw this cool new PEPM thing uh, and I, I want it because I think the employees would like it. It's, you know, and, and we see this and this is where you have to start of sort of construct the argument with finance. Do we have a turnover problem? Yes, we do. Okay. Have you guys ever quantified the turnover problem? Yeah, we, we have bigger than a bread box, smaller than a refrigerator. Okay. Well, let's, let's pick a dollar amount. Let's talk about how we can impact turnover. Do we have a presenteeism problem? Do we have an absenteeism problem? And a lot of times those are things related to uh, health issues going on or uh, money problems, right? And and the whole person comes to work and, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think one of the biggest divorce drivers is uh, issues with, you know, household budgets. and Absolutely. Yeah. So Almost 40% of all turnover can be associated uh, to financial stress. Uh, you know, I, mean, you, you, I, I think, this this the line of inquiry, the line of focus is a hundred percent consistent with what I see, uh, and I, I mean I, I'm wondering. I mean, is the, the opportunity just to do something as simple as uh, for for those folks who have critical illness and hospital indemnity uh, insurance, what what is their likelihood for turnover within a twelve to twenty four month period, as opposed to uh, you know a control group of those who don't have it, you know, and and I, I wonder if we get that specific, you, you know, it, it, you know, it's that kind of real direct storytelling that I'm trying to, you know, think through a whole host of layers to do on our side at FinFit, you know, and, and, and you know, certainly, uh, you know, look to partners like Benary to kind of help help us tell that sort of, I think, very rich landscape of, of financial uh, resiliency for the American worker. And, and there's a whole host of pieces in here that I think would be really interesting on that, on that, on that painting, that landscape. What, what do you think? I mean, is that 
a little too granular or meaningful? Um, I think it's hard to, from a granular standpoint, it's hard to point to any one thing. But the the overarching thing that I see is um, we're all doing a pretty good job of explaining the what, right? We're not doing a great job of explaining the why. Like, why am I putting this in front of you? Or why do I think, you know, and we were talking about the why with uh, from HR to finance for why we need the next thing. And, and not just my opinion, but here's the math. Like, that's a, a more powerful argument to make. But the why to the employees of, you know, why did you come here and why are you staying here and why do we have the benefits package that we have and why are we, you know, rolling out this new initiative and why does wellness matter and why do we need to biometrically screen you? Like it's not to be invasive. We're trying to, you know, potentially save your life kind of a thing. So I would just say, you know, if you queried a hundred employers, they would say, yes, our benefits program is absolutely part of our recruitment and retention strategy indirectly it sort of becomes part of their brand and part of that you know best places to to work in America uh, path that a lot of companies are on but you know the, the companies that are that are maximizing the perceived value out of those dollars invested are explaining the why right that, that, that's a terrific point and I you know I, I think there's so much sort of um, glossed over sort of, you know, I said just sort of lip service to, um, you know, I think wellness. I mean, but what, what I really love about, you know, beginning to sort of take critical illness and hospital indemnity and have it be a, a core part of the plan that's employer funded is you're, you're smoothing out in it. I mean, inside of a population, I don't know what the exact numbers are. You let me know and say if in an employer funded model, what percentage of that population are going to be doing claims every year. I guess let's start there. Yeah, we we don't quote me on the numbers, but for sure. hospital hospital admittances and then major catastrophic uh, items, you know, you're talking about more the severity and less of the frequency. But I want to. That's a risk pool. Is you know, I put in a small amount of money to potentially get a big amount of money if the unexpected or you know, the, 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 the catastrophe happens, you know, we, we all, we all have uh, insurance on our homes and very few of our homes burn down in any given year. But if it does burn down, I sure as heck want insurance for, you know, every, my house and everything that's in it. So uh, the frequency isn't as, as high, but we know for a fact that in any given population, there's going to be trips to the hospital. It shows up in all the claims data and there's going to be some, you know, it might be, mel you know, melanoma and not as serious, or it might be stage four, like I described before. I want a hundred percent of the employees to have a safety net for that. And, you know, they're all doing the best that they can to, to save and to be responsible and, um, protecting that is uh, something that we're trying to do it voluntarily. And the, you know, if, if we had 80% participation, I'd say, yeah, the, the final 20% are, you know, they, they kind of are getting, they're getting not what they deserve, but they're, they're the minority. The reality is the minority are, are signing up for it. And yet, you know, I, I, I hate to think that 80% of the people that have a, catastrophic event could have had a financial protection. So the question for the employer is, how are you spreading those dollars around? And would you get a lot of mileage, especially when only two to 3% of employers are uh, truly funding that on an employer paid basis today? It's growing, but it's still a real chance for people to stand out. And, and the other thing that's kind of cool about that, Charles, is it, it's sort of like a 50% off sale if you do it employer funded. And how so? Uh, that, that's interesting. Well, when let's start with the I mean, sort of buying in bulk, or is that how it works? I mean, is it well, let's start with the pricing of the program from the carrier side. 
there's immediately a reduction of the uncertainty around who will sign up. If I'm only getting one in five or one in four people to sign up, are they going to be the frequent flyers or the people that are most at risk? So I add a risk premium to that. Whereas if I ha- if I know I'm having enrollment of the full population, the risk premium goes away and I get a 20% reduction off the price immediately. If I'm if I'm doing it in a, in a captive environment where I know I'm funding it as the employer, I've already gotten a 20% reduction, I'm going to get a, a dividend back on the claims. So once I do that, I don't really need to move that program so I can go net of commissions. And commissions in this space can be 20 to 70%. Um, our, our program built as high as 70, yeah, in, in first year. And then with every, with turnover, it's the, you know, the 70% that keeps on giving, unfortunately. Um, but I can go net on that, right? And because I don't need to move it, I don't really need to broker it. So on an employer paid basis, I can go net. So I get a 20% discount and then let's take 20% there. And then at the end of the year, after the claims are paid, that cushion you know, of the claims fund further goes back. And historically, our, our dividend has been about 20%, but we're underwriting to 10. So once we right size that, that's 10%. So 20 for, for less risk. 20 for what commissions are and 10 for the dividend and you get to a half off sale. And so for the employer to offer it to all employees, the employees don't know that it's a half off sale, but for the employer, it's a really good value play. Right. See, that's amazing. I mean, in these moments, I I sort of want to take, you know, a CEO, let's say, you know, we, we have a CEO, of a thousand person company. And I want to ask her to do, you know, contemplating a, you know, making this a hundred percent employer funded insurance and, you know, looking at a number, let's just say the claims on that population are like 10%, you know, somewhere around that. And say, well, you know, it's not that high, you know, maybe you just leave this on the sideline a little bit as a supplement, you know, volunteer into it. I would ask that CEO, literally get a hundred random employees and bring them out to dinner and then make the decision after dinner. And, and I, for whatever reason, I mean, I think especially when we deal with these large population numbers, we throw around, well, 5% is not that much or 10. That's not that bad. You know, 15, you know, it's so easy to sort of laminate from the human experience for some reason, you know, I, and, and this to me just feels like one of the real low hanging fruit uh, for the American workforce to build resiliency, because what you're doing is you're really um, removing that sort of that really dramatic hit on the expense line that's it can be almost impossible to come back from from a family standpoint. You know, it, it's well, just exacerbating I'll, I'll, uh, that. I'll, I'll, I'll support what you're saying uh, in a different way and and apologies for geeking out on all the insurance stuff, but for that same, uh, for that, for that, for that same CEO, um, which they're going to be self-insured for their medical. The question is, uh, do you buy medical stop loss insurance for catastrophic claims? And the answer 100% of the time, uh, unless you're, you know, Walmart size, there's, handful that maybe go completely without, but in the the vast majority uh, being like 99% of self-insured companies, the answer is yes, we buy medical stop loss insurance. All right. Why wouldn't we offer a catastrophic medical stop loss insurance for the family? Because a $10,000 out-of-pocket maximum is the equivalent of you buying, uh, you know, a million dollar coverage for your company. And I, you want to hug at the Christmas party, you know, have have the person that had a diagnosis for something come up and say, I can't tell you the amount of stress that you have saved my family by um, covering that for us. You know, it's uh, it's it's meaningful and and 
I love your example of the hundred people. It makes it more more human. But um, and then we no, you know, I, I tell I, you what makes it human for me, and I think what I'm taking out of this entire. I really I love that phrase. I'm going to hold on to that phrase. That, you know, how are we building a medical stop loss for the family? And, and you know, because that's I think that's language that a CFO can understand. It's language that you know, chief human resources officer can understand. And, and it also, it pulls it into almost, this be, should become a part of the conversation for the, as, you know, through the fiduciary lens, honestly, you know, and, and I, so speaking of that, I mean, what sort of steps do we need to take in terms of, you know, um, you know, absent regulation, you, you know, of, of sort of creating this sort of medical stop loss for the family, which I love that. Uh, and, and, you know, just ensuring that we continue what seems to be a really positive trend in this regard. Well, again, um, if you have empirical evidence or tangible evidence of the why, it helps. And you and I have had, you know, many discussions. You're more of an expert on this than I am. But the percentage of bankruptcies for for Americans that have a medical imprint on them is the majority. Uh, not always not always the sole driver, but very, very often a major contributing factor, if not the the sole reason for bankruptcy. And the thing is eighty percent of that time, these people have insurance. Like they're not these aren't irres, you know, uh, irresponsible is probably not the right word, but um, uninsured, you know, people that just said, oh, you know, I'm bulletproof. I'm not going to sign up for any insurance. Um, again, regulation aside, um, they have insurance and they're still declaring bankruptcy. So let's let's use the math. And how do you personalize that? I'm not sure, but the, the statistics nationally don't lie that we need medical stop loss for the families in these catastrophic situations. And the, the one thing we haven't mentioned, because we're using sort of the the um, the big uh, sudden fortuity of having a, a medical event like a heart attack, let's not forget about the the runaway cost of specialty drugs and the massive pipeline of all the therapies that are coming out and everything else. Like we could be an MIT math professor and not be able to solve some of these situations that, that we're in and that are uh, not getting any better. And, you know, the federal government's trying to do a little bit uh, with the drug issues. But my fear when I see that is we already have a cost shift coming to the private sector for employer funded if they squeeze this into the balloon and say, look, we're not going to pay exorbitant prices versus the rest of the world anymore as the federal government, guess what happens on the other end of the balloon? <laughs> right. And, and the other end of the balloon is the employer funded uh, share of the market, which is, um, you know, it's already running. Healthcare is already running higher than general inflation and pharmacy is running higher than healthcare inflation. And when you squeeze that into the balloon uh, on the on the Medicare Medicaid side of things, gas on the it's fire. Unsustainable. It's yeah. unsustainable. It's unsustainable. I, I think you perfectly framed the the problem set though, and this is something I think is worth continuously repeating, which is you know eighty percent of of those folks who have gone through bankruptcy because of medical debt had insurance. And, and and that that to me is if, if that doesn't inspire the industry to sort of get a blank piece of paper and, and reapproach plan design, <laughs> I don't know what will. I mean, because I mean that that just says it's not working on some level. Well, it's it, it's not the employer's fault though, because you know they the outlet valve, you know, it, short of just not having an insurance program is we're trying to make the math work and you know uh, plan designs have suffered because of it and i think we know, need a bunch of creative release valves i mean you know i, I don't know yeah. what the answers are but i mean it's 
it certainly calls for a part two of this discussion in the future, you know, yeah. where, where, you know, we get together and solve all the, all the world's problems. And it'd be awesome if we could tackle the demand side of it as well. Like let's, right. let's, let's get in the uh, staying out of the hospital business. Uh, how do we exactly in the hospital business? So. Exactly. So, so in our next conversation, I'll, I'll find a, an MIT mathematician to join us and see, see if we can, and make some headway. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm a high school algebra guy. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. Yeah, I, I, I still use my little $7 calculator I got from Staples. If it gets much past that, I'm in trouble, you know. So you're, well, uh, you're, 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 you're indicating your age, Charles, because <laughs> our kids are just using their phones for everything, right? So they, exactly. the fact that you have a calculator... Yeah. Uh. <laughs> let, let, let me tell you, uh, far before my calculator uh, story, my age was indicated. <laughs> so, so. That makes two of us. I tell you, Lamont, every time we have an opportunity to sit down, I, I learn so much. You bring so much insight into this space. Um, you know, I mean, you you really have a, a really keen perspective on, you know, not necessarily how to solve everything, but you're really focused on a couple of core areas, you, you know, in, in, in innovating with inside of your company, Benary. I just think things that are, one, just make so much financial sense on the employer side um, with your captive model and the dividend that goes back to support just your employees on an ongoing basis. But really, I mean, how do you smooth out those catastrophic events for the American worker? And, and I really do believe that the work that you're doing is contribute can absolutely positively contribute to the financial resiliency of all American workers and and just on behalf of everybody, thank you for the work that you're doing in that regard, and, and just also th thank you for the time today. And I, I sincerely appreciate that time, but I also appreciate your insights, and it's always great to chat. Thanks, Charles, for the kind words, and uh, likewise, it's. Uh... The, the feeling of the energy I get when we uh, interact uh, or interact is uh, certainly mutual. So I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. I'll have you back. All right. See you soon. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.